In this podcast episode, we want to introduce you to our BCEN friend, Kaylee Summers. Come along as Michael Dexter and Holly Briggs talk with Kaylee about her lived experiences and current passion for perinatal trauma. Kaylee offers some great insight and advice during this meaningful conversation. This episode is called Speak Now with the Birth Trauma Mama. Hello, and welcome to the BCN and Friends podcast, where we hold interesting conversations about learning with a range of thought leaders, BCN certification holders, and industry professionals, but most importantly, to create value and insight for you, our professional nurses across the emergency spectrum. We hope you find our discussions interesting, informative, sometimes funny, sometimes serious, and always valuable. I'm Holly Briggs, a professional development specialist at BCN and one of your hosts for today. I'm joined by my co-host, Michael Dexter, Director of Professional Development at BCEN. Hi, Michael. Hello, Holly. It's great to have you with us. In this episode of BCN and Friends, we have Kaylee Summers. Kaylee brings a unique perspective to our podcast from her lived experiences and current passion for perinatal trauma. I'm super excited to have a chance to speak with her more, so I'm going to hand this over to Michael to please introduce us to our BCN friend, Kaylee. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I'm really excited to have Kaylee on the podcast today. She is one actually that I found a while back while looking um, into some different aspects that I'll let her talk about, but just a very unique perspective, very interesting story, and really, really happy to talk with her and learn more about it today. Kaylee Summers is a licensed clinical social worker and private practice owner in Downingtown, Pennsylvania. She uses her training as a licensed therapist and her own experience as an amniotic fluid embolism survivor to treat and support families experiencing perinatal trauma. Kaylee has created thriving birth trauma support communities through Instagram and TikTok, as well as her podcast, where she provides connection, story sharing, and resources to support those experiencing birth and other trauma. Kaylee, welcome to the BCN and Friends podcast. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Hey, thank you so much. It is such an honor to be here. I'm really excited to to get to talk to you both. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. And I didn't want to talk too much about your story. Tell us about your pregnancy with your son and kind of just go through the steps of how your delivery progressed. Yeah, absolutely. I was, it was my first child, my only child and my first pregnancy. So I was 40 weeks and two days. I was very ready to be done being pregnant. I was very large and I had some high blood pressure readings in the office. And so their protocol is when that happens both at the beginning and the end of your appointment that they send you in to be checked out, especially since I was past my due dates. And so I went ahead and we talked about induction and because I was pretty concerned about the size of my son, I did consent to an induction. And just as a caveat, he was 10 pounds, 14 ounces. So I was correct about the size and being concerned about it. But yeah, so, so I went through an induction. It was a slow and long process because I was not dilated at that point. And so we were kind of starting from ground zero and we wanted to be very careful with that. So slow was the name of the game. So about two and a half days after I had been admitted, I was finally 10 centimeters, very, very excited and um, exhausted to say the least. And my OB came in and she said, you know, you made it. We're here. Get excited. And she left the room. My nurse was going to talk to me about how to push, teach me a little bit about that. And I turned to my nurse and I said, I'm not feeling well. And she said, that's normal for transition, as we know it is. She said, I'll get you a bag 
to be sick in. And I said, nope, something is really wrong. And as she went to go look at my vitals, I started screaming that something was wrong with my heart. And I then immediately went into cardiopulmonary arrest. And so my nurse hit the code blue button and everyone from everywhere came running into uh, my room at that point. My husband was kind of pushed back to the corner to get out of the way. They were um, calling for what OR to take me to. Obviously at this point, my son is still in utero. And so they needed to get him out. And so they got me down to the OR and my son was delivered via cesarean section while CPR was being performed on me. And they were able to get him out miraculously from six minutes from the time that that code was called. So that code blue button was hit. Six minutes later, my son was born and that saved his life. He did not he he did not come out great, but he was able to be resuscitated quite quickly and did really, really well. I, on the other hand, at this point, CPR is still continuing towards the end of my C-section when they were able to get a pulse back at that point, <clears throat> I was able to be resuscitated. My OB had, had a pretty strong inkling that this was an amniotic fluid embolism right from that point. Um, there was not a ton of differentials for when someone has sudden cardiopulmonary arrest and is a otherwise healthy pregnant person in labor. And so she started to prepare for the next phase per se of an amniotic fluid embolism, which is DIC. And so she prophylactically put in a Bakri balloon. I wasn't bleeding at this point. She had, she will tell you, I made sure your incision was bone dry by the time I left that C-section incision. But again, she knew DIC was likely on its way and a few minutes later, I did start to hemorrhage rapidly. In the first hour, they had already collected about five liters in the Bakri balloon alone, and they called for a massive transfusion protocol. And at the end of this whole ordeal, I needed 143 units of blood product. And so they were pushing it in through the rapid infuser as fast as it was coming out. And at this point, they had called to the medical center. So I was in like a hospital system. This was technically a community hospital, but they were a trauma too, which allowed them to thankfully have enough blood product to keep me alive. Um, but it wasn't a medical center. It wasn't a teaching hospital. And so they called over to medical center for ECMO because they were not able to get me stabilized, hemodynamically stabilized at this point. And they knew I was going to continue to go into cardiac arrest if they couldn't make that happen. Um, so they made the call for ECMO. I did um, go into cardiac arrest again. They needed to repeat CPR again. At this point, they did put in a Reboa, but they never inflated it, thankfully, because they were able to get me resuscitated again within a few minutes. And so they're waiting for ECMO to be transported over with the entire ECMO team. And that happened about an hour and a half to two hours after the initial code blue was called. And so they came, they got me on ECMO, stabilized me at least in that way. And then they had to make a decision about the bleeding because ECMO could keep me alive, but not if they can't keep the blood in my body. They took me down to interventional radiology to embolize my uterine arteries. They did that. At that point, my abdomen had filled full of blood again. So they were like, we're going to have to go back in. I had a lot of trauma surgeons who were a part of the case at this point. And they opened me back up to like six liters in my abdomen. And they performed a hysterectomy 
and they also removed one of my ovaries. So I was left with one ovary. They packed me and they left me open to be transported to the medical center for them to maintain the ECMO circuit. And so this all happened over the course of about like eight or nine hours. The other side of that, of course, is my family in the waiting room being told some pretty grim news, being told not to Google it. And they were able to see me before I was transported to Lankanal, which is the medical center that I went to. I kind of wish that was like the neat bow that that tied up the story and then everything was great. But unfortunately, you know, I, I was transferred and when I was transferred, ECMO was keeping me alive profusing and oxygenating me, but my heart was not recovering in the way that it should have. So my ejection fraction was very low and they had tried all of the drugs, Milarone, all of those to try to get my heart to effectively start pumping. So at about four o'clock in the morning, my cardiologist came out and told my family, like, we've done all of the drugs. We are kind of at a loss. So we're going to try an impella, which they explained to my family as a tiny little windmill that goes up in through the femoral artery into my heart to offload my left ventricle, give my my heart the time it needed to rest and recover. And if that didn't work, my heart would clot and I would not survive. And so put the impella in and within 24 hours, my heart looked great. Two days later, I was able to come off of ECMO. Day after that, I was able to be extubated. And on the fifth day postpartum is when I met my son. Callahan for the first time. And I have a beautiful video of that, even though I don't remember it. Thank you for sharing all of that. And yes. I know there's a, a lot more to the story, but yes. I, I, it's also it just so incredible to me because working in different facilities I've worked in, I've never been in a place where we could give 143 units of blood readily available. And to have that and to have you know that that team of, of surgeons available there's very few centers that have an ecmo program there's not a lot that are familiar with impella and to have all of those resources available it's just incredible that that was that was there for you without so many of those opportunities to help you we wouldn't be talking today that is very very true we got very lucky with a small like you said there's so many stories that go into this but like a small side note is that i was not supposed to deliver at that hospital when i first got pregnant i was supposed to deliver at my local hospital this one was about 45 minutes away that local hospital i to no one's fault i would have died at because they would not have had trauma surgeons they would not have had blood product they wouldn't have had the things that they needed to keep me alive the access to so quickly get ecmo from the other hospital. Yes, there were a lot of things that lined up perfectly that day. I am just, honestly, I'm just sitting here and like, not disbelief, but it's, it's hard to believe that I'm talking to you. I'm sure the statistics would say that you shouldn't, but you are here and kudos to that team who was able to work so well together and be so forward thinking of saying like, well, this is going to happen next and this is going to happen next. And, this, and so Wow. I know that on, on your website, which we will um, have in our blog for the podcast. Um, so if any of you are interested in kind of some more details, you can definitely uh, jump on that and I'll have that for you. Uh, can you tell us just a little bit more about your time in the ICU? So five days in, you get to meet your son and when did things start to improve for you? Like what was your recovery like? Because again, a lot of times as ER nurses, trauma nurses, we get to see like the short window and we don't get to see the like when you get to go home. So, yeah. 
Yeah. So I was in the cardiothoracic ICU for the first week. So like four or five of those days, I was in technically not a coma, sedated, heavily sedated. And yeah, so on the fifth day, I woke up per se, they woke me up. I don't have any memories until the sixth day. And my first memory is actually my OBGYN and my anesthesiologist who didn't work at that hospital coming to see me. And they offered to tell me what happened. They told my family that they would kind of explain to me because I I had woken up and I was like, what's happening? <laughs> and my family was like, you had a C-section and you just had like some complications. And I was like, looking around a CTICU room, I was like, some complications? I feel like there's more to the story here. And they're like, all right, she's drugged up enough that we can like keep this going for a little bit, but eventually we're going to have to tell her what happened. And so it just happened to be that my, my two doctors came that day and offered to sit down with me. And I remember I have such a, such a memory of my OB holding my one hand on one side and my anesthesiologist holding my hand on the other and taking me through exactly what had happened. And for someone who is just an information gatherer, that was that moment was so important for me to truly understand what I had been through and what had happened over the past five days when I was not aware. And so the the progress of my healing, the report that we got, that my family got was, she's gonna be here for a few months and then she'll go to rehab and like she's she's gonna be on ECMO for two weeks. She's gonna, it's gonna be long. She's gonna take one step forward, two steps back. And so then I came off ECMO in two days and then I was extubated. And then I, when I first woke up, I was dealing definitely with a lot of pain. So I had had, I left this part out. I had had five abdominal surgeries because I had to keep going back in and doing washouts and things because it wasn't a ster super sterile environment where the crash um, had happened. So I had a lot of pain and I really struggled those first few days in the CTICU. I struggled emotionally. I struggled with a lot of anxiety and I will give my CTSU nurses. They were angels. Not only were they just so brilliant in the work that they did and the knowledge that they had, it was my nurse. It was my CTSU nurse who advocated for me to be extubated when I was extubated. And there was a lot of conversation about me not being ready. And she's like, I'm telling you she's ready. And they got my son on me skin to skin the day after he was born. So while I was still on ECMO, they made sure that my son was skin to skin, not just like held up to me. There are pictures of my naked baby on my naked chest while I was on ECMO, which is insane. And absolutely, I think had something to do with my healing. And so they did that every day that I was in the CTICU until I woke up. And then I was transferred down to the step down ICU after seven days. And there was a lot of talk about going to mother baby and then going to rehab. And by Friday of that week, so nine days after my AFE, I was walking stairs in the ICU. And I was like, get me out of here. And so I transferred. My only issue at that point was my white blood cell count was like 27. And so they were a little worried that there was an infection brewing, but after lots of testing, they sent me home exactly 14 days after my AFE. So I transferred from ICU straight home. Uh, yeah.
Oh, that's awesome. Yes. <laughs> well, it, you yeah. you are very well spoken at everything that happened. And I mentioned that you're a licensed social worker. So could you just kind of jump back before this happened? Did you have any, were you in medical before? Did your social work career happen after this? Can you kind of explain that side of, of what you do and then tell us now that you are a licensed social worker, what your focus is? Yeah, I was a social worker prior to having my son. I worked at a boarding school with teenagers providing therapy. And then I had my son. I continued to work at the boarding school for another three years. And then in that time, I was getting a lot of training on perinatal trauma, obviously. <laughs> and so that is what I had decided I wanted to focus on and, and sort of go into. And so I did that for the three years that I still worked at that boarding school. I, I did a lot of training on my own. I did a lot of reading. And then I decided to open my own practice specifically focused in perinatal trauma, which I just opened in like a year ago. So in July of 2022, so my son was three. It was really important to me to wait to dive into this clinical work until I had done a lot of my own healing around what had happened. And so three years out, I finally felt like I was in a good enough place um, to be able to do that and offer support to others in that way. Um, medically speaking, I have no medical background. I am now obsessed with <laughs> maternal health and everything that has to do with obstetric complications. And I do work. I do a lot of work for the AFE Foundation as well. So uh, yeah, I, it's just, I'm a hobbyist, I like to say you said it so beautifully, you realized like you needed to be healed first before you could help others find healing for the things that they have been through the experiences that they had. But I, I love that you were like, you know what, I'm going to dig into this, not just for myself, but the knowledge that what I gain, I'll be able to turn around and give. And I think that that is just, I mean, it's so commendable. Healing is so important. And then helping others find healing too. Like that's, it's just such a beautiful thing from something that is so painful. So, wow, we appreciate the work that you're doing and definitely wishing you the best for all of the people who, who come seeking, seeking advice, seeking help, direction, you know, just where to even start. I think yeah. that probably is probably like the first question, like, where do we start? <laughs> yeah, I think that's huge. I think I, I kind of skipped over this part, but what, like about six months after my son was born, I, I started my Instagram page and that was very much born out of me looking around and being like, no one's talking about this. Like I see these beautiful births, which is amazing. And we want that. That's the goal, right? That's all I see. And I can't be, while AFE is rare, having complications or even just not feeling good about your birth is not all that rare. And kind of like, what can I offer? I'm not a medical professional, so I can't offer like the research side of this stuff. So like, what can I offer to help? And I'm a therapist. So feelings, <laughs> let's, let's talk about feelings. And that's, that's what that Instagram, my Instagram and TikTok were, were kind of born out of that. And I'm going to be honest as someone who works in the medical field, I think that we need to talk about our feelings more. So yes. we're, we're real good about pulling mm -hmm. out research. You got to cover practice. <laughs> we're good at that, but I, I feel like we could learn a thing or two about talking about feelings. So in that same, I guess in that same like vein of questioning, what advice would you give to nurses who are maybe working in emergency transport, critical care environments, 
what advice could you give them that would help them in the care that they give? Not necessarily, it could be specifically for perinatal trauma, but I think a lot of the things that she probably have learned can probably be given to most patients. So what advice would you give us? I think this is is such a great question. When we're speaking generally about critical care, I think one of the hardest things for medical providers and professionals to recognize, and I get this, is you see a patient, let's take my case, for example, that should have died. And for all intents and purposes, I absolutely should not be here. And you watch as that person survives and as that person recovers and as that person wakes up, as my OB said, your cardiologist texted me and was like, she's sitting up texting in the ICU. Like that is the perspective that you all have. And what you probably don't understand is that I walked into the hospital to have a baby and I woke up in the CTICU without a uterus. And so the critical care aspect of that is that this is the worst day of someone's life, even if they survive. And that's what I had to take home with me because what happened and what so often happens in these cases is the beautiful, well-meaning, oh my God, I can't believe you survived. Oh my God, you should be so grateful. Oh my God, at least you and the baby are healthy. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And I was like, I just wanted to have a baby and now my life will never be the same. And I am so grateful that I'm not dead. Let me be very clear. And I make that very clear. I'm so grateful for our outcome. And at the same exact time, I'm devastated or I was by what occurred. And so I think in our rush to, again, like you guys were there, you saw, like people saw me in the OR. I I had a nurse who I'm very close with my medical team now, if you can't tell. And my one nurse, I I love telling the story because it's just a little bit chill inducing. I had painted my nails bright pink like a few days before as like welcoming my baby. And my nurse remembers thinking in the OR, looking at my nail polish and thinking I'm going to go to this girl's funeral and she's going to have that pink nail polish on. And so like for that to be your, like you're experiencing your own trauma. And it's so important to, of course, recognize that we need to do a better job of the medical system of supporting providers who have vicarious trauma. It's a whole, it's a topic probably for a whole nother day but recognizing that your patient didn't experience that i'm start my day zero is everyone else's day five everyone has done the whole this is awful she might die oh my god she's not going to die this is the best and i wake up with all of this information put on me that changes my life forever in that in that exact moment and so having having that perspective i think as a medical provider understanding that like yes grateful to survive but also this is really really hard is an important, I think, empathy for us to receive as patients. And when I tell you, it changes the course of emotional recovery for patients. As someone who has been through it and has had the most supportive medical team, and as someone who works with clients who have not, it changes outcomes. It totally changes the mental health of a patient for them to be validated in what they experienced rather than being told, at least you're alive, right? I, I, I had the most amazing medical team and I can still remember 
the like one or two professionals that came into my room and one of them said, you know, I had a similar, my ancillary, whatever relative had a heart attack and it was really scary and hard, but you know, you just have to push it down and move on. And I will never forget that. And, and that's the thing, patients never forget these things that just seem like offhanded comments that are so invalidating to the experience that they have had. And all you have to do is just say, I'm so sorry this happened to you. Yeah. So sorry this was your experience. This must have been so scary. One of the best pieces of advice I ever received was from a therapist. And they were like, look, sometimes all you need to tell patients is, I wish this had never happened to you. It at least gives them the understanding that you recognize that this wasn't the plan they had for the day. And whatever that meant, whatever they're walking through, at least what you're saying is, gosh, I wish this hadn't happened to you. I wish it was different. And it lets them know that like, yeah, I'm sure you do too. So at least we can agree that this wasn't what you wanted for the day. And so, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Thank you for, thank you for saying that. And it, again, as someone who sits on the other side more often than not, it's a great reminder that most patients, they just want to be heard and have their, you know, even though they're grateful for great care, it doesn't mean that they still don't have feelings of loss and pain and guilt, sometimes shame, all of those things that come with just wishing things would have been different and that it had gone according to plan. (laughs) Exactly. And none of that is a judgment on the care received, right? There are two. So I will sing my care team's praises to the rooftops. As you heard the story, they were miracle workers. I still don't really understand how they did what they did. And I still get to have my feelings that I had an amniotic fluid embolism. Like that's, that's not a, that's not fun. Uh, And that's okay. No, doesn't sound like it at all. Haley, you've definitely talked about this life-changing experience and used those words several times. And, you know, there's something that we like to ask everybody on this podcast, and that is, is there a particular moment, which it's well-established that there was, (laughs) but is there, I'd kind of like to know more, is there a particular person in your life or in your career that's really impacted you? And I know you're doing a lot of work with the AFE Foundation and you're helping a lot of individuals through your organization or through your company you've set up, but who, who's made an impact on you as a person? Oh my goodness. That is a hard question. So many people, honestly, like so many people. I think all of these people, like 50 odd people, more than probably. Well, you don't, you- <laughs> And you certainly don't have to to mention any of those individual people for for the fear of leaving somebody out unintentionally. Oh, but, sure, sure. But is is there any other moment or any other thing that said like this is definitely the trajectory I want to do with my life? I would say there's a a great moment. There's a lot I'll say, but there's this one moment early on when I was sharing my story, and a lot of the I would say a lot of the like TikTok content I create is more like medically related to like raising awareness for AFE because again while we can't prevent it if we have more people who are aware of it and aware of like the supportive treatments to at least try to get people to the other side of it the you know the better off we are and so I received a message this was about two years ago from a nurse and she said I'm reaching out because we're L&D nurses and about a week ago our our unit was really slow 
And so we were looking at TikTok and we saw your video and we were like, oh my God, that's crazy. Jeez, AFE, we've never had one of those. Like we should, we should brush up on that. Jeez. And so they did. And a week later they had an AFE and they saved her. And that always gets me like emotional wow, that's, because that is, it's, yeah. yeah, it's, and she, she was specifically reaching out to tell me that I had played a role in saving that person's life, which is a beautiful thing for her to do. Yeah, definitely. Well, yeah, thank you for sharing that. That's, that is beautiful. And I so appreciate what you're doing to, to spread the awareness of this and to work towards it. And I know it's a lot of hard work on your part and it's, and it's difficult even emotionally resharing your story over and over again, but thank you for once again, sharing that with us. And I really appreciate that. And I'm sure whoever that individual was, I'd be thanking you too, if she, if she knew. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I am going to change the trajectory of our podcast just a little bit because we'd like to get to know you just a little bit better. So I'm going to ask you some of your favorites and have you share that with us, but I always like to start off, like, what would you be doing if you weren't in your current role? And I know that, you know, a lot of this is, is kind of where you're at in life is based upon, you know, the experiences that you had, but if you could just, if you could just do anything you wanted, what would you do? So I swear it's not because I'm on this podcast. I think that you can tell that I'm very like medically invested. <laughs> I, see that. I would love, like I had even talked about it after I had my AFE of like going back to school and going into the medical field in some capacity, either as like a nurse, a respiratory therapist, something of the sort. Doctor felt very far out of reach for how much more schooling after already having a master's degree. <laughs> So yeah, I think I would love, I would love to be yeah in the medical field in some way, shape or form. Well, I don't want to pull you away from what you're doing because it's very much needed. I'll be honest. We could use some really good nurses out there. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, just going to keep that door open for you. You let us know. We'll definitely write you a letter of recommendation wherever you want to go. All right. I have some favorites favorite book and it can be what you're reading now that you'd recommend or one, just one of your favorites. I have a lot of favorites. So, okay. So I recently did read the court of Rose and Thorns. Is that what it's called? It's Akatar. That series. It's like a fantasy series. I'm not a fantasy reader. Great series. Highly recommend. Loved it. So I'll say that for now. I also really love the book, A Gift of Therapy. Very good on like the, the other side of things. Oh, I love that. I am, I read nonfiction. I read fiction. And honestly, it just kind of depends on what book I have available and what I'm trying to maybe step away from. So sometimes, sometimes when the real world feels a little too real, I like to read something that's a little bit whimsical and, or just never going to happen. So thank you for that. I'm going to actually write one of those down. Cause I love a good series too. You yes. know, sometimes, sometimes I get invested in characters and then I'm like, what do you mean? Right, That's it. Right. I'll give one more plug too for oh. parents. Mm-hmm. I don't often recommend a lot of parenting books, but I don't know if you've ever heard of Emily Oster. She's incredible. She has a book. She's an economist. So it's all research-based unsurprisingly it's where I like to live and she has one on pregnancy one on like early parenthood and it has all the data on like breastfeeding sleep stuff all the things that you need to make your own informed decisions so I highly recommend 
those expecting better, I think, and crib sheet are the two. Awesome. Well, thank you for that. I love good book recommendations. All right. Favorite movie again, all time, or just something that you currently like, or it can be TV show too. You, you, you pick, which would you prefer? Or you could tell us both. We're, we're here. We're all yours. I'm the worst at bests. I would say like, I hate this because it's so cliche and I wish I could come up with like a really cool like show. And I've watched, I really like the bear. I was recently watching that. That's like a little cooler, but I love Grey's Anatomy, like die hard. I don't care how corny and terrible the meta, all of my medical friends, like, I can't watch it. It's like, she's, she's got like a tube in her nose. It doesn't, I'm like, I know I don't care. I love it. So I'm going to have to stay true to, I've watched it since I was a freshman in high school when it first came out live until recently when it really started to go downhill. So I'm sticking to Grey's Anatomy. One of my sisters is she's, she's all in it with you. And she's like, I know it's not, it's not accurate, but there's something about those characters. And I'm like, it's the character development. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She's right. Yeah. All right. Favorite musical artist. I mean, Taylor Swift. (laughs) She's incredible. I can't, I can't. I used to, another thing I used to deny because I thought it was like corny and like, no, she is an incredible artist and I back up my love for her. You are talking to a Swifty. Okay. I'm so glad. Um, glad. Yes. And I felt the same way when I was like, I can't believe. Let me clarify that. That's just Holly that she's Ah. talking. Uh, stop it, Michael. I feel like, feel like you're, you're hiding, but you, you just don't know that you're one yet because I feel like most people are going to be like, yeah, I mean, I'd listen to her or they'll be like me and be like, I definitely listen to her. So yes, she's awesome. And you know what, Taylor, if you're ever listening to this podcast and you just want to take me and Kaylee, yes, please. Uh, you know, wherever, actually, we don't even care as long as we get to hang out with you. So shameless plug. All right. What is your comfort food or a meal that you really enjoy? Okay. Again, I get made fun of for this one all the time, but I will stand by it. It is a very specifically made breakfast sandwich, bacon or sausage, egg, lots of cheese, very melty cheese on an everything bagel. I'm also from New Jersey, so I don't know if that, like, I feel like the whole bagel sandwich thing is very Jersey of me. Yeah. I think that the bagel thing, I'm from the South and I don't know Mm -hmm. if we maybe just don't know how to make bagels. You guys don't make good bagels. They're terrible. It's awful. And, and I mean, we make a lot of other good food. That's true. That's true. Maybe it's, maybe that's why we're like, look, we won't take your bagels from you guys. Please don't. Um, You can have your bagels. But that actually sounds delicious. And I'm also one of those people. I strongly support breakfast for dinner as an option. So you, you, you had me at lots of cheese. All right. Other hobbies or a self-care go-to. What do you do to kind of like reset? Hmm. I do like reading a lot. I've gotten back into that as a self-care, becoming a mom. Love listening to podcasts. Besides that, I mean, does Instagram count as a hobby? Because <laughs> I'm yes. literally always doing that. <laughs> I think it should because hobbies are normally measured in like the amount of time or hours you put into it. And so sometimes you fall down the black hole of social media and yeah, it's not good self-care as a therapist. It's not. But it's not. sometimes it's totally necessary. So yes, I would say reading, 
podcasts first. I'd love to be someone who like crochets or does, I don't, but I, I would love that. I'm not artistic. I'm not creative. So that's puzzles, love puzzles. My kid who's, who just turned, I didn't even say when this was, I had my AFE four years ago. He just turned four and now he likes like puzzles, like big floor puzzles, but he's into them. And I'm like, this is going to be our thing. We're going to puzzle together and it's going to be great. Oh, y'all like make your, you know, like 50 piece puzzles, hundred, yes, 500. Exactly. We're going to work our way up. Oh, over the years. That's such a good hobby that you're going to get to share with your kiddo. That's awesome. Well, if our audience would like to follow you in line, what social media platforms are you on? And I will go ahead and plug the website, which is the birth That is the website that she can find Kaylee on. And she's going to let you know where she, you can look her up on social media. Yes. Um, my handle is at the birth trauma underscore mama on both Instagram and TikTok. That's m- mostly what I'm on. The birth trauma mama on Facebook, not super active there, but it does exist. So come on over. We talk about all things birth trauma. I swear it's not as deep and dark as it sounds. Sometimes it's light. Sometimes. I think there's awesome. humor to be found in some dark places too. So always thanks for sharing some light. Well, thank you for that, Kaylee. Appreciate it. Yeah, Kaylee, thank you for being on this podcast and sharing. Uh, you know, as I mentioned at the very beginning, I found your story online uh, quite a while ago. And just really, uh, I think a lot more people need to know not only the amazing things that happened and, and you know, where you came and what you went through, but uh, the the way that you've taken that and impacted so many others, the way that you've shared, the way that you've educated, the way that you continue to do that. All of that aside, the way that you talk about the patient perspective, I think it's so incredibly important to hear your perspective, being on the other side of the stretcher, the other side of the bed, knowing and being able to so well articulate what it's like to go through that so that nurses can take that and impact their practice in different ways. And so I really appreciate you being on this with us and sharing all of that. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. That, that truly means so much to me. It's really, it's been my goal, right. Since, since I started this. So I really appreciate you again, taking the time to to talk with me and have me on your podcast and allow me to, to speak to so many of the wonderful nurses in your community. Well, I want to take this time to thank Kaylee for joining us for this episode of BCN and friends. Thank you, Kaylee, for sharing your personal experiences the journey that you've been on and the passion that you have. Your support of patients and families through connection and education are making an impact. And we want to say thank you for all that you've done and you continue to do. And to all of our listeners, we hope you will stay tuned as we continue with BCN and friends and bring you new meaningful content and perspectives. If you have a suggestion for an episode, please email us at bcn at bcn.org. I'm Holly Briggs here with Michael Dexter and on behalf of the entire BCN team, We thank and celebrate you for all that you're doing as professional nurses across the emergency spectrum. Until next time, we are out.